0: This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desatova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to introduce my colleague Sawani Alexander, who is an assistant professor in sociolinguistics at the Faculty of Liberal Arts at the Ubon Ratchathani University in Thailand. Welcome to the podcast, Sawani. Thank you for having me, Petra. So, Sawani and I have been working together as colleagues on a research project on the 2019 Thai election for some time now, but today we're not going to talk about elections. We are going to talk about something that is a bit closer to Sawani's original training and research expertise, the less privileged people in Thailand in the last decade from a linguistic perspective. My first question would be, who are actually the politically less privileged people in Thailand and what is their relevance?
1: They are just a majority of Thai people. They basically are ordinary people from a lower socioeconomic status. You can mm-hmm. imagine people juggling between jobs, living in urban urbanized or rural areas. Mm-hmm. Caught up in ways of life that are not quite rural or urban, maybe urban during the day and rural Mm -hmm. at night when they go home to their family. They can be street vendors. You can see Mm -hmm. them as taxi drivers Mm -hmm. in Bangkok or in big provincial towns. They can be farmers. But at the same time, these farmers can be petty vendors or laborers too. I call them politically less privileged because Mm -hmm. these people have been participating in electoral politics as voters ever since the election system started, you know, Mm -hmm. after the 1932 revolution. The 1997 constitution, uh, which was the first to be drafted by a popularly elected committee, allowed these people's voices to be recognized by the new election system. And since then, these people for a while became politically powerful. Their voting resulted in political parties attending to their needs in terms of public services and welfare. So between 2001, which was when the first election under this constitution took place, and the military crew in 2006, it was about five years. These people enjoyed these newly found political powers. They never had, or they didn't realize they had. So at that point, they started to recognize that the voices counted. Their voting made a political party associated with Taksin what, who many of them perceived as the first prime minister to keep his promise of addressing their uh, social and economic needs. The voting sent, sent this party uh, to power. And after that, they started to see that these policies materialized and their lives became better. But then in uh, 2006, uh, there was a growing opposition, and finally, you know, he was ousted by the coup, the military coup. After that, not right away, probably in 2007, these people joined a political movement to oppose the coup, the junta, and its pro-elite supporters. So that movement, as a lot of people call uh, the red shirts, mm-hmm. uh, for the color of the shirts they, um, they wore in protests. So basically, the struggle of the redshirt movement is partly the struggle of these voters. Uh, Since 2007, when the redshirt movement started, these people have been fighting and going through a lot of harsh suppressions by those in powers who have been backed by the elite. And the biggest one being in 2010, when the military was ordered to use violence to disperse them. And between 2007 and 2010, or even a little bit after that, we saw that these same people kept winning elections, right, and voting for taxing parties back in. And throughout this time, they fought in the streets and in polling stations. So these voters, who were just ordinary people, uh, became political protesters, realizing their powers in doing things that they probably never thought they would do. But at the same time, the opposition camp was not sitting still waiting around for things to happen, right? So the opposition side all this time has been fighting against or trying to suppress, because they have more power, these people. So basically what you're seeing here is the elite versus ordinary people. As many of those interested in Thailand already know, the traditional structure of Thai society, controlled by the elite establishment, being extremely stratified is not at all conducive to democratic development. And you can see in a large number of military coups since the 1932 revolution, which marked the beginning of the long struggle for democracy. What the coups in 2006 and 2014 did was putting democracy or democratic development on hold. So basically what we've been seeing is the rise of bureaucracy, at the same time, what we have been seeing is the weakening of the people in general, and especially these protesters or people who are more active in protests against the ruling powers. So, voters, you know, most of whom were these ordinary people, or in Thailand, we like to call them, who so, by electoral politics are the majority, right? Because they keep winning elections, then um, they should be powerful, right? by electoral politics standard, but by the Thai traditional rule, they are the less privileged, and they're seen as not deserving to take part as stakeholders in Thai politics. Those of you who are um, interested in Thai society, right, we know that these people have been stigmatized as gullible, uneducated, and cannot be trusted with the future of the country. So this rhetoric is very powerful and it has been powerful given our hierarchical society where members have been taught to respect those above us. And we're taught to take it as okay, to treat people below us uh, however they deserve. So I'm not saying that all ties would automatically mistreat people, you know, uh, who they perceive as under them. But you have this thinking, this frame of thinking, this structure in place that authorizes or condones mistreatment of people who you don't perceive as equal or higher than you. So it's pretty well accepted. And this thinking has allowed the culture of impunity, the obsession with seniority, or social and political rank, or exceptionalism to to be so widespread in this country. I think it's the fact that these people have become electorally powerful in the past 10 years that, you know, has been seen as a threat to the people who have been in power, uh, given the structure of our society. And that is the very reason that we need to study these people.
0: That's very, very true. So maybe for those listeners who might not be that familiar with Thai politics, it's probably worth mentioning that Thailand has transitioned from absolute to constitutional monarchy in 1932. And that transition from non-democratic to maybe democratic rule has not been complete yet. And the the fight between those traditional forces and the more pro-democratic forces has intensified during the past 10 years. And the group of the people that you call these politically less privileged people actually are pretty powerful in terms of numbers, right? Because every electoral contest that they went into, they were able to vote those parties that they favoured into power. But then their right was taken. taken away from them through a series of military calls or sometimes even judicial rulings. So do these people really have power and is there really any hope for them to change the the current political stratification of the society or even the political system? It's a good question. Well,
1: if they had power, we wouldn't be talking about them. Right? Very, true. The very The very problem is that they are supposed to be recognized as powerful, but they have their power taken away by force, right? So in the past 10 or even 15 years, they woke up from this lack of self-confidence, uh, believe in themselves as somebody determining the future of the country, after they realize and enjoy that, that power for a while, that power uh, was taken away by the time after time. But uh, is there any hope in studying them? You know, why do we need to study them if they are less privileged or underprivileged? Uh, what I'm interested in is trying to understand the political thinking because mm-hmm. that drives actions. And based on what I've found, I'm pretty convinced that these people have a strong will. They are aware of their political rights. They have a sense of being citizens, whether or not you agree with their politics, whether or not you think, you know, their choices are right, but you need to recognize they know their rights and they believe they have the rights as citizens of this country. And this is a very important point. And a lot of people used to say that they were just paid protesters, you know, and stuff. But we have seen that they struggle for equality. It is the very thing that supports such a hierarchical society like Thailand, and uh, the supporters of hierarchical society guard against this equality. So what they are trying to ask for is a minimization or a removal of inequalities in the traditional system. Many of us who have studied Thai politics in the past 10 years or so to see that they struggled after Tuxin was forced out in 2006. Their struggle only grew bigger until they you know, even after they were, like, deadly, fatally dispersed in 2010. There About 36 of them came from the Northeast, where I am. Yeah. You know, about 80-something civilians died in that dispersal. You would think in modern Thai history, this is... Absolutely scary, mm-hmm. right? Uh, being killed, protesting at the heart of Bangkok and being killed. But they came back. They came back to stage more protests between 2012 and 2014, right before the coup. The violence that were used against them did not seem to, to stop them. And in the 2011 election, again, they sent Ying Shinawatra, Thaksin's younger sister, to power. So basically, they didn't stop fighting. And after the coup, and again, based on my research, they were harshly suppressed, especially in the Northeast, their stronghold. <laughs> but again, they tried to lay low. This is what we found. But what we also saw was that they kept talking about politics, they've been following politics. But studying them became harder because after the coup, there were a lot of, you know, harsh, harsh suppressions. And again, people who were not articulated became silent. Hmm. Eventually, they don't necessarily trust anybody, not even academics or outsiders. But the fact that I've been following them for 10 years now and have learned a lot in terms of their political beliefs, I realized that many of them remain unchanged in terms of what they believe. And we also saw in the 2019 election in our project, the results of evidence, Pua Tai, which is associated with Thaksin and Yingluck, uh, came back it didn't win the majority of course it didn't run in all constituencies and if you look at you know the number of votes that pura thai and future forward which is also another anti junta and even more progressive than pura thai in terms of policies these two parties garnered a lot of votes a lot of support from these ordinary people mm. Again, as you see, what happened to Tuju Forward is also evidence that the ruling elite never wanted to stop either. You know, they they continue to fight either, even though they uh, they've been ruling the country. I'd say if you're interested in the issue of participation in democratic development. I think you need to look here in the Northeast or look at these people, who they are, and learn about them in order to see why, despite years and years mm. of suppression, and generation after another, if you consider, you know, the region or the long history of political struggle during the Cold War, or even before of ordinary people in especially the Northeast or in provinces, these people continue this political uh, tenacity. I'd say after the elections, you started to see them back in the streets in in gatherings and stuff, but not to the point that they were so strong like before 2010. And at the level of personal interactions, these people still band together in small groups. They talk about politics. They follow the news. They complain about things that, that have been happening in the country. And of course, these people have children. Have, they have family. And they have their associates that would continue their uh, struggles and their beliefs like before. So whether or not we will see any change in the future... I still believe it is worth to follow them and learn about them, especially given the fact that they are voters and they are the majority of Thai people.
0: That's a very fair point that it is worth following these people because the fight is far from over and it's still ongoing. But I'm going to turn back to one of the points that you mentioned before. For those who might not know, obviously, there has been a lot of suppression, especially following the 2014 coup, so the latest uh, military coup in Thailand. And the suppression was actually happening on two levels so there was a physical suppression, but then there has been a lot of suppression in the rhetoric as well and you've already picked on this point that these people have been consistently undermined on the narrative level as well as stupid um, often even really called derogatory like buffalos, water buffalos. Um, yes. So is this where the linguistic side comes through? How does the language really matter in in all this?
1: As a linguist who is fascinated by politics and being Thai on top of that, I grew up in this system where we're taught to listen to elders or seniors or people who have more power and do whatever they told us to do. So expressing ourselves through language in an honest way is not easy. It's, it's never easy. And this is why ties are not very articulate. And this is my personal opinion, you know, growing up in the system and, and being a linguist studying uh, the system. I think this is why Thai are not very articulate and, and may come across as way too polite. Well, we at one point, we used to be called the land of smile because we don't do anything but smiling and acting friendly, right? But on top of that, imagine being somebody from a very humble background. Mm. Uh, you'd likely be very reserved and shy about sharing your views, you know, let alone political views during this time where you can put in jail for just saying things. Means, right. So that is a general, my general perception of Thai society in terms of how we express ourselves to it through language. They are limited. But now in our natural way of communicating as human beings, as human beings, we do many things to communicate. Right. We tell the truth. We speak out mind. We lie or indirectly express our thoughts because we're afraid of potential danger from being honest. Yet yeah, we want to make our point across. So there's so many communicative goals. Uh, sometimes these goals clash and we need to negotiate. And it's not easy for us researchers just to say, oh, I interviewed this person and she said that so-and-so. You can't be quick to believe what you hear, Mm -hmm. you know, as face value. And especially studying the politics of the poor or the less privileged in Thailand. That kind of complicates the issue of learning about what people think. I turn to linguistics because I think that it helps to understand people through the way they they talk. Mm -hmm. But people don't always talk. I think to really understand them is to rely on, you know, studying that talk. In using a more ethnographic approach, Mm -hmm. so spending time with them, talking to them in casual ways, you know, observing them in actions, taking part in their activities, and basically spending a lot of time trying to understand them, you know, to gain trust, to be looking at things standing next to them. So it's been 10 years now, and I I still can't say that I know a lot. Mm-hmm. Every day is new, and they say things that surprise me. But mo- much of what I've done is observing them as they're doing activities. And uh, of course, as a linguist, I don't just observe what they do. I need to examine what they say and even what they don't say. So I rely a lot on the analysis of what linguists call pragmatic presuppositions, Pragmatic presuppositions are, are things that are underlying background knowledge or belief the speakers rely on in order for, for what they say to make sense or they think makes sense to the hearer. Kind of a consensus in the mind, at least of the speaker, because you have to assume that the hearer would understand or would get what you want to say. But in order to get what you you intend to communicate, they have to have or they have to share certain things, certain set of knowledge. Analyzing pragmatic presuppositions takes you under the surface of the words or sentences or phrases that people use. But you do look for linguistic traces and clues, words, phrases, sentence structures uh, to help you uncover what is hidden. But these hidden things are not intended. They are assumed. So when people don't intend to communicate this, people don't think about it. People don't catch themselves saying it, or showing it. So I think this is fascinating. and I think it helps a lot for me to understand people's beliefs, even when they don't exactly say things that, that they think. It helps to discover with linguistic evidence uh, what background assumptions people have when they say or do things would really help to understand their political thinkings when they they are not direct with
0: you that 's true in the the situation the current situation, especially in Thailand, where you can 't really speak your mind freely these mm-hmm. groups of people probably would have developed certain techniques, how to overcome these limits on, on their freedoms of speech. Mm-hmm. So are there any techniques that you have observed throughout your study that you thought, Oh, this is really interesting, how they actually get around these problems.
1: Well, it's like encoding things in um, special language is it's, it's uh, for example, this is not necessarily pragmatic presupposition examples, but when people say using a pronoun, for example, you know, this pronoun, man, mm-hmm. in Thai, is uh, literally translated into English as it. Mm-hmm. But we use that particular pronoun to refer to human, to people, but in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. Somebody could say, man tham la, for example, oh, it did that again. So by using a derogatory pronoun, the people framed mm-hmm. you know, the statement in a negative way and referring to it And the other person understands that exactly, understands exactly what it or man refers to without having to say anything much, having to go back who. And people just started complaining about things and go on and on, knowing that they have this shared assumption of what this pronoun or what who this pronoun refers to. So I think it is fascinating, unless you have your background knowledge of Mm. of what it refers to, then, then you probably, you know, have no clue. You probably say, what, who... Or take another example, Um, this I got from my research, say, if you ask, what is the cause of these problems in the country? What is the root cause of all these problems in the country? Because, oh, you really want to know, after spending two hours talking to them, you think that, oh, they warmed up, they are ready to talk to me. And (laughs) so after a while, you know, after they complain about politics and everything else, now tell me what is the cause of all these problems in the country, because you think that maybe is a tongue mm-hmm. but your lively informant instead of saying anything right away your informant stops and starts making eye contact smirks or smiles mm-hmm. a little bit and starts shaking his head without saying a word what do you make of this Petra yes we might be stunned we might wonder all of a sudden this person stops talking why does he not say anything And then you start thinking as a linguist, what's the meaning of his eye contact? Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of his smile? What is the meaning behind his lack of words after bombarding you with all these complaints about politics and economic problems? Again, for people who have no background knowledge shared with you know your informants you probably keep wondering but if you've been well acquainted with the group and the people and you share the background knowledge with a the speaker then you can quickly develop this understanding of mm. what he means by not saying anything but yeah. smiling and shaking his head instead
0: mm.
1: but what i'm saying is that yes but then if you leave this unchecked You would just go home with your assumption that this is what you mean. And this is the very reason that you have to spend time. This is the very reason that you have to have very good knowledge of the language and uh, background knowledge. And this is why ethnographic studies and linguistic studies are very, very important in the study of Thai politics. Because in this harsh environment, harsh legal and political environment, People are not free to express themselves. Right. So you probably come away with this data gathering session with this assumption or speculation that, oh, this is what he probably means. And that's why you keep talking to a lot of people and comparing what you found in this without jumping into the conclusion that, oh, this is it. We don't do that. Qualitative researchers don't do that anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we have to be patient and we have to take a very close listen to what people say or not say body
0: language in the context of the communication it's very very interesting and and it's it's really fascinating to know how creative these people have actually become in terms of expressing their opinions without actually really saying anything over the past 10 years there have been moments when these red shirts or or these less privileged people have to a certain degree hijacked some of the official narratives and quite cleverly twisted them around and one particular yeah. example i'm thinking about is the the discussion where they appropriated a particular way of referring to themselves by referring to themselves as pri, as as, as servants. Mm -hmm. Would you maybe like to explain a little bit more? I mean, have you really talked to your informants about this more and where did that come from? Interesting.
1: I've been asked about the Red Buffaloes, Mm -hmm. but nobody has interviewed me or asked about my take on um, the fact that the Richards... We're using extensively in in the 2010 protest um, pride and uh, the writing was even on the stage and stuff. I think it was um, a metaphor, right? It is. It is a metaphor of being somebody lower, uh, somebody bigger in terms of number. Uh, somebody uh, working hard, ordinary, as opposed to Ahmad, which is the aristocrats, people in power associated with the elites. But then what you see is, it's not like looking down upon themselves and embracing this lower rank. No, it is not accepting, but it is stressing that I am here as a pride because you made me, you suppressed me. You keep me under. So what the pride are trying to do now is to show to you the people of a much higher status that we are equal. You know, they refer to Ahmad as people with privileges who are exempt from rules and uh, regulations and everything. While these pride are subject to all these rules and the, the notion of equality only applies to them. And those people up there are exempt from everything. So this notion of pride is different from the, the notion of Kwaidang when they say, Yes, I'm Dang, What? Because this is just like a way of saying that I'm not obsessed with what I appear on the outside. I might look unsophisticated. I might come from Banag, which is villages. I might look poor. I might not have much. I might not look good like you living in Bangkok, good-looking people and ugly people from the Northeast. (laughs) And uh, so what? The notion of Kwa is like, yes, I'm ugly. I am poor. I might not have a good education, but I am a citizen of this country mm. and I have the rights to participate in this political system. These two words are very interesting in, in the way the Red Shirts uh, have been using, using them.
0: I think this will be my last question as we are running out of time, but are these two notions pray, um which is basically a servant, and, uh-huh. praying, which is basically uh-huh. a battle, are they still uh-huh. in a wide use among these red shirts, or are they sort of no longer referred to us too often or used as often?
1: The interesting part is that the red themselves don't refer to you know among them they don't refer to themselves you know that way exactly. they're just consurdang or we you know normal it it just um a word that they use when they talk to other people just like we in the northeast do not have to refer to ourselves as izan people mm-hmm. among ourselves because it's known we, there's no need to to reflect on that so th- these two words are not commonly used in uh, as an in-group uh, references mm-hmm. at all But what I've seen is that more intellectual people who associate themselves with the racial movement, like middle-class people, intellectuals, educated people in Bangkok started adopting this term, Khoai Dang, Mm -hmm. to refer to themselves as a way of expressing solidarity with the original Khoai Dang. Mm. So it is a play on word. It's a it's a way of showing solidarity as a parody mm. of oh they call us kwadang yeah 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 so what so i started seeing that after the protest days i've seen that today mm-hmm. on social media and stuff and it would be very interesting to see the history at least in them in the past 10 years of how these words have gone through in terms of transformations mm-hmm. or Changes in meanings and who embraces them and who deny them, who get upset when you call them pride or pride. So,
0: mm. interesting. It is very interesting. I'm sure that we could probably think of lots of different words that have been used um, in a similar way. Originally yeah. thought of something quite derogatory, but then have been taken by those people and turned around to actually empower them and try to counter the established narratives in those ways so hopefully we'll get time to discuss these a bit more maybe sometime in the future but uh, I'm afraid this has to be it for today so thank you very much for for actually taking part and talking about this fascinating topic with us today. Thank you so much Petar for having me. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and by the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desitova, a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today with Sawani Alexander, who is an assistant professor in sociolinguistics at the Faculty of Liberal Arts at the Ubon Ratchathani University. Thank you.
1: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.